Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How do you take union values, mix in some collective power, and then bring them to life through public action. Today, our guest on Changemaker Chat says, you can't just have a spark, you need to have a sustained plan. In the United States, Randy Weingarten is an acknowledged and influential leader. She's been at the heart of the teachers' union movement for over 25 years and has been president of the 1.7 million member-strong American Federation of Teachers since 2008. While Randy has actively kept education reform in the nation's agenda, With such a large membership body by her side, she is in an influential position to play an important role in the fight to unseat President Trump in 2020. Today, we find out what drives Randy in her change-making. We delve into her background, explore stories and strategies for change from the teaching union movement. We also explore the mobilising power of social movements and how the election of President Trump invited her to rethink how and where she organised. Organising, action and reflection, these are the ingredients of Weingarten's approach to change-making. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. It's great to have you with us. And the first thing that we'd all love to know is, what do you do, especially as a unionist, as the head of the American Teachers Federation, that makes you a changemaker? I often think of myself as the luckiest person in the world in that I get to work at the nexus of of public education and the labor movement. And so I believe with, with every drop that is in me that we need to help people have a better life a voice at work and a voice in democracy, that what public education does is that is the pathway for kids to um, not just dream their dreams, which is important in and of itself, but have the wherewithal to achieve those dreams. And that the labor movement does that for working people all across the world. So when you get to work in that sweet spot that is both um, the vehicle that creates power for working people so that they can fight for that better life, living living wages, decent health care, retirement security, the fight to be free from bigotry and hate, the fight for democracy, the 
fight for good schools. And then you're also smack dab in the middle of the fight to ensure that students from pre-K through higher education have the, the skills and the knowledge to be prepared for their civic life, their economic life, their life in general, like career, college, and life. That's the change that I try to help spark. Fantastic. And we're going to get to that work in a bit. But what I want to do is first ask you about why you would do all this kind of work in the first place. You've spent your whole career in different forms of change making. Tell me, where did the spark first come from for you, for you to be connected with the the labour movement and to education? It was a sense when I was young of trying to correct injustice. I'll, I'll never forget a conversation when I was in high school with some of my friends who would always say to me, well, you're the goody two-shoes. I'm like, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, you always want to help people. And, and it was interesting to, to, to see, to hear friends of mine think about that negatively instead of positively. Um, but I, you know, I, I always, I grew up in a way of thinking and feeling like we needed to make a better world. And, and I've been really lucky in my life. I'm, I mean, I've had my struggles, but I've been lucky in that, you know, I've been able to navigate any, you know, the obstacles that have been in my way. I've been lucky enough to be able to navigate them. And so I just chose service in terms of what I wanted to do in my life and help others rise. And frankly, when you do that, whether it was teacher, a teacher in a classroom or, you know, negotiating a contract or seeing someone who you've, you know, tried to get elected actually win a race, this is what America should be. There's a sense that the American dream um, is realizable by by all, but you need to have fairness, and and that doesn't happen automatically. That only happens if you create um, an environment that enables that. So I think it's a combination. Why education as service? Why teaching as service? Like like who and what inspired you to go there? Like lots of people care about social justice, but they might apply that in different directions based on their own experience. What experiences told you that education was the right place to go? Again, I would actually say growing up. And so my mom was a teacher. My mom was one of my mentors. I loved the fact that in 2008, I got to be for a couple of years the leader of my mother's union, which was quite a thrill. It was a thrill that when I won the position, when I was elected as the, as the head of the AFT, my mom was in the audience, as was a couple of my teachers from high school. You know, I do think that people have to climb up a ladder of opportunity, but somebody has to put that ladder there, and somebody has to catch you if you fall, are clearly people who actually help enable opportunity. And so that, I, you know, in terms of first instinct, first impulse, 
it's education. It's foundational to a democracy. It is the propeller of an economy. And it is the way in which children reach and realize potential. So I don't think there's any better way of service than, than public education. And, and the difference between public and private is that public education is about all. It's about all kids. And, and, and we're far away from a perfect system. And I really, really hate when people pretend or try to disparage me or my members about being in the status quo. I don't know one teacher who doesn't fight for better conditions for our kids. Yeah, But what I find really interesting about your career, Randy, is that you haven't only been involved in education. You've done lots of different work. I mean, you're a bit of a polymath. You've moved across different spaces. You're in law, you're in education, industrial relations is a specialty. What have those different fields over the course of your lifetime taught you about how to make progressive social change? So I would actually say when I look at those different fields, There were a couple of experiences when I was a high school student that were very motivating to me or that had great influence on me. One was that my mom was on strike for, I think, six or seven weeks when I was a high school student. And in New York State, you had uh, a law that, while while it enabled collective bargaining for school teachers and other public employees, it also had pretty stiff penalties for striking. So, so my mother had two days' pay deducted for every day she didn't that she was on strike, which meant um, it seemed to be months and months that she didn't get paid or she would get a check for like three cents or four cents. And it was, and, you know, my sister and I were going to college or going to college soon. And that was after, you know, a few years before that, my father had been laid off for a couple of years. So it's not as if, you know, we, we were, we were middle class, but my sister and I both worked while we were in college and my parents did everything in their power to, you know, help us defray the costs of college. But watching that struggle and the solidarity of people who, frankly, never really thought about being in unions, that was compelling to me, that the notion that it is only together that you can achieve things, that the sense of power of the collective was something I saw back when I was in high school. The sense that to win, you have to build power. And and that means you have to have more than values and ideas, as important as those are, and they are, you know, a, a, a condition precedent. You have to have values to move an agenda and to, to move an agenda that will also move both in terms of membership and community. But it can't just be ideas. It can't just be values. You have to have the power of a social movement to to move an agenda, to move your values, and that's where union comes in. And watching the struggle and watching these teachers, there were about 290, 297 teachers in her district, of which 294 were on strike for that many weeks in a small community in New York State was was you know very impactful on me. So so I think that that was meaningful and impactful, and I've never lost those lessons. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, right? It's it's led to a pretty interesting career. Now. I'm wanting to bring us back to the present and for you to reflect on your insights on change making. We have a global audience and 
you are in the heart of Trump's America. What have you learned from being a unionist under Trump? So, you know, I want to I wanna start with something that A. Philip Randolph said, because I think that what he says, what he said when he was a unionist in the Jim Crow, in the Jim Crow era is probably as important today as it was then. And I think it kind of answers the question about Trump, which is what Randolph said, and let me quote it, is, at the banquet table of nature, there are no reserved seats. You get what you can take and you keep what you can hold. If you can't take anything, you won't get anything. And if you can't hold anything, you won't keep anything. And you can't take anything without organization. And what Randolph tried to do and what the labor movement tries to do is that we build community around the work we do and the aspirations we have. And so it's building community, understanding in a clear eye, with clear eyes, what's in front of you and the obstacles and what you need to do to create power. But it is power that is also layered with hope and aspiration. And what has happened is that the, in the Trump era, what Trump taps into is the exact opposite. And Trump taps into people's fear and deprivation and grievance and tries to pit people against each other and communities against each other. In, in some ways, like the worst of the Lord of the Flies or the worst of the Game of Thrones, the sense of competition and survival of the fittest, and that he, instead of being organization that helps and working together um, as a movement that helps create things, it is only him who becomes the, you know, the, the great leader that, that people um, cling to. And look, there's 20 or 30 percent, maybe sometimes 35 or 40 percent of his base, as he has said, that even if he shot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, which is, you know, the big boulevard in New York City, that his base would still justify it or love him for it or whatever, because he binds people through frustration and through fear. And so what we've learned is what I've learned is that hope and aspiration for a better life, a voice at work, a voice in democracy, meaning that when you put out a value system that is about hope and aspiration for all working people and people believe it, and you create movements around it, you can trump fear. That is so true. And one of the things that I have endless respect for from the unionism from the American Teachers Federation is that you readily connect the workplace interests that your members have with broader social interests. You know, you work on class sizes, on facilities, on privatisation. You don't just work on teacher wages. Although, let me be very clear, teacher wages are completely a justice issue when people are being paid poverty wages. And what you're doing reminds me of this quote from this famous industrial relations writer, a guy called Flanders, who said that unions need to work both on vested interest 
and hold up the sword of justice. Do you see that playing out as a philosophy at all in terms of how you work, in terms of the unionism that you practice? Well, I think that we've tried to integrate them and be very forward-facing. So, you know, you asked me a while ago, like, what, what I see we have to do. Teachers have to be part of community. That is, most of us went into teaching to make a difference in the lives of others. We chose that as the work we were going to do. And in exchange, want to be treated fairly for it. You don't go into teaching if you, you know, are about acquiring other corporations or want to make a gazillion dollars. You go into teaching because you, you know, you have a different view, you know, in life that you want to make a difference in the lives of others. And frankly, I think that activists in unions, they do union work because they want to be part of the change that makes life better for people, that makes life fairer for people. I guess that if you see a community as a virtuous circle, you want to try and help more and more people have enough of a living wage that they can actually enjoy the bounty of their work. Um, you can talk about it differently. If you work hard and play by the rules, you should have a, a decent life. And so I think that if you find a way that you can make your advocacy in as authentic a way as possible, that, that people have to see that you credibly want the things that you're saying, that you're just not saying it for, you know, to game someone, then I think it's easy to be about what community needs because community wants to keep their teachers. They want to attract and retain good teachers. They want teachers to be part of the life of community. And so the idea that teachers should get a decent wage is something that, at least in America now, people believe in. But the teachers themselves, um, by and large, don't just advocate for their own wages or their own pensions. They advocate for the teaching and the learning conditions that kids need. In fact, what we're seeing right now is that teachers and, and other educators are very focused on two things the disinvestment that has happened in America, particularly since the Great Recession of the, you know, of 10 years ago, and also the freedom to teach. So, so we have two campaigns running right now, Funding Our Future, which is about how we have the conditions of teaching and learning in schools that kids need to soar, and how we enable teachers to have the freedom to teach, not just the pay for a living wage, but the freedom to actually meet the needs of children. And when I go around the country, this is where educators are, that they see that wanting every single public school to be a place where parents want to send their kids and educators want to work and kids are engaged and thrive. How are these like mobilizations of power that erupted at a particular point 
kind of different to the sustained work of unionism, of organising, of organisation. What have these movements taught you about social change? So let me push back a bit in terms of, with the exception of what initially happened in West Virginia, every one of the teacher demonstrations as well as the fight back against violence have been mobilized through organization, that it is a combination of, it, it is the vehicle of the union or of other, of kids getting together, of others getting together, that has created a sustained campaign to try to right mm. an injustice. Yeah. So this is going to be a question that's going to be of more, greater interest to uh, international uh, listeners rather than American listeners. But you know, we're all pretty interested in the fact that there's going to be a presidential election pretty soon. And uh, we're very um, taking great note of the variety of candidates that have emerged and how they're all going. What are your thoughts about what's going on um, with the election more broadly? Well, look, I th- that's a big question. And let's say that Over the course of the last two decades, you know, we've had both Democrats as well as Republicans do their fair share of disparaging um, educators and public education. And, you know, we were not fans of the secretary of education or the first secretary of education under President Obama, Arne Duncan, um, just like we are not fans of the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, who is probably the most anti-public education person who's ever occupied that position. And I'm not quite sure what she likes less, whether it's labor unions or public education, but she makes no, she doesn't hide her contempt for um, anything of workers organizing together or of, you know, a focus on the public good as opposed to privatization and competition and the, you know, obeisance to the market. So having said that, you know, you have even Democrats in this period of time where money really matters in elections. You have this huge inequity in the United States. I'm sure that you've seen it in Australia, too, between the rich and everyone else. And the wealthy really control the political system and the economic system. So in an economy that Donald Trump says is the best ever, um, you know, which people are pretty offended by when he says it, but the economy that he says is the best ever, 40% of Americans couldn't put $400 together for an emergency. So it's through that lens that we look at where the Democrats are. And, there, and, and what we're seeing is a lot of Democrats kind of coming back to what I call Rooseveltian values, to kind of middle-class economic values where if you work hard and play by the rules, you, your family should get ahead, meaning your family, your children should be, be do better than you did. But there needs to be an economy where there's shared prosperity And there needs to be the opportunity agents like public education and like a union, a labor movement that can actually be 
the kind of check and balance to um, corporate aggrandizement or oligarchy. And so what is interesting right now is that of the 22 Democratic candidates, you're hearing more and more of them talking about the needs of working people, not the needs of the innovation society and what we need to do to kind of get, I mean, what, you know, like workers just try to understand that um, the world is changing and you got to catch up to it. We heard that 10 years ago from former Democrats. Now, in some ways, because Trump has, you know, both because Trump has tapped into this kind of level of frustration of rural areas of the abandoned Rust Belt, there's been a wake-up call for Democrats that these issues are really important. Issues, frankly, that myself and other members of the labor movement have been championing for decades. So the combination of, of unions actually being more and more and more favored by Americans, public education being more and more and more favored by Americans, the sense that even the Trump voter basically voted for Trump because he tapped into the frustration that they were left behind, all of this is leading to a much more progressive agenda by virtually all of the Democratic candidates. And that's only music to our ears. We need a Democratic candidate who is going to be able to say union um, without equivocation, who will walk on a picket line, who understands that you that working people have power through unions, that unions are a vehicle by which they meet aspiration, that politics should be about finding people ways to have good jobs, living wages, college without unsustainable debt, health care where you're not one illness away from bankruptcy, a public school that has the resources and the teachers and the curriculum that kids need to thrive and wrap around services so that we can meet kids' well-being needs. And this is what you're starting to hear as well as the other big issue, which is economics and the rule of law, and the sense that we need a country that actually has a democracy where the rule of law and our constitution is not only adhered to and respected, but not defiled by a current president. Yeah, it's like the whole game has changed, actually. It's it's shifted, which is actually what real power looks like, setting the agenda for all of them to act off. It's It's amazing. Exactly. So when so when you hear uh, when you see it, Elizabeth Warren do a huge proposal for both childcare for and and a huge proposal to eliminate student debt, or you see a, a candidate like Kamala Harris do a proposal to increase teacher pay, you see candidates talking about how important universal coverage for healthcare is or living wages are or that public education is foundational to our democracy and they don't shy away like Joe Biden walk the picket line of grocery workers that were on strike these are really great signs that workers and working people are going to be dominant i hope in this election 
Okay, so one final question, and this is one for reflection. We've talked about the things that you've learned across your career about making change in different spaces, whether it's the union movement or in politics or working with social movements. And you know we have such a wonderful listener base of people who are interested in these questions and how to make change. If there was one thing you could impart or teach or suggest to our audience about how change is made, one thing you'd love them to know or an insight you'd like them to gain from your career, what would it be? It will actually be two things, maybe three. Number one is believe in something that is bigger than yourself. And number two, enlarge the tent. I've learned that values are really important, but values without power will not move an agenda. And to have power means to build movement. And to build movement means you have to have community. And to have community means you have to be, you have to listen to people, you have to share values, you have to come together um, as a movement, as a collective, as an organization, which means it can't just be your ideas, it has to be others' ideas. You have to enlarge the tent. And the more you do that, And the more you build with other people a community, you connect, you build alliances, you act in concert on on values that are just and righteous, then you make change. It can't be about you. It has to be about the change that is important for a better life for the fight you are making. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Randy, for your time. We know you're incredibly busy and we appreciate every single minute. Thank you. Thank you. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of change making.